The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. We're going to look this morning briefly at 1 Peter, and um, I'll begin reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and read uh, through chapter 2, verse 3. The Word of God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of the Lord. One of the things I find mildly annoying is people who are constantly giving Christianizing reviews of movies. You all probably know, have at least one person like that in your life. I remember when the Star Wars movies came out before most of you were born. And a friend of mine gave Christian parallels to everything. The Force was, of course, the Holy Spirit. Darth Vader was the Dark Father Satan. Luke Skywalker was the son sent by the Father Obi-Wan. You get how it goes. It gets fairly nauseating. Same kinds of things have uh, happened uh, with regard to movies like The Matrix and some others. Well, this morning I want to be mildly annoying and give you a Christianized view of a movie. (laughs) I want to join the fray so you can say at least you've heard one annoying Christianized review of a movie. And it's a movie that uh, came out recently. I think it uh, got best picture this year, No Country for Old Men based on the novel you probably know by Cormac McCarthy, novel by the same name. The movie uh, opens with a man by the name of Ed Tom, so you can already tell it's set in the South. 
particularly uh, now in Texas, of course, Ed Tom uh, Bell, and Ed Tom begins with a narrative telling us uh, something of why he is a sheriff. He explains his rationale for being a sheriff. I want to read that uh, to you. Fortunately for me, it's written in West Texan. Ed Tom says, there was this boy I sent to the electric chair at Huntsville here a while back. My arrest and my testimony. He killed a 14-year-old girl. Paper said it was a crime of passion, but he told me there wasn't any passion to it. Told me that he'd been planning to kill somebody for about as long as he could remember. Said that if they turned him out, he'd do it again. Said he knew he was going to hell. Be there in about 15 minutes. I don't know what to make of that. I surely don't. The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. Always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job, but I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. Man would have to put his soul at hazard. He'd have to say, okay, I'll be part of this world. Now, the subtext of uh, the movie, while all kinds of uh, killings, uh, random killings and evil run rampant, is that the sheriff, Ed Tom, is looking to the day when he can retire and get away from this overwhelming evil. He knows that the evil in the world is too powerful. He can't overcome it. He certainly can't understand it. He doesn't want to be part of it, even though it's his job to try to rein it in. And the bottom line is that this world in which he lives is no country for old men. The thing that struck me about this uh, movie when I saw it was that it's one of the most vivid and compelling pictures of what life is like when there is no real hope of redemption. So stark uh, is this picture that when I was walking out of the movie, a couple of gentlemen much older than myself were walking out, and one of them remarked, well, I guess that's how they do movies today. They just don't give them any ending. But in spite of initial appearances, there was an ending. It was an ending that uh, injected an attempt at redemption. The movie ends with Ed Tom now having retired sitting at the breakfast table with nothing really to do with himself. He begins to describe his dream the night before to the woman he's sitting with. And he dreams he sees his father, and here's his description. He says, It was like we was both back in older times, and I was on horseback going through the mountains of a night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold, and there was snow on the ground, and he rode past me and kept on going. Never said nothing going by, he just rode on past. He had his blanket wrapped around him and his head down, and when he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do, and I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead, and he was fixing to make a fire somewhere out there in all that dark and all that cold, and I knew that whenever I got there, he would be there. Then I woke up. You see, the only redemption in this movie is that redemption is a dream. What's real is the overwhelming amount and intensity of evil and suffering that we confront in this world. It's so overwhelming that it eventually wears you down and you can't live with it anymore. And the only way out is a dream. Now, I think uh, McCarthy got some things right in terms of suffering and evil, but what the movie gets wrong, I think hopelessly wrong, is that the evil that we live and breathe in this world, in this country, is not the sum and substance of the real world. What he got wrong is that redemption is 
a dream. Last time I was here, last fall, we looked at 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know that the people to whom Peter writes are in the midst of trials and suffering. They're experiencing the kind of violence and sin and evil that McCarthy depicts in this movie. But now here's Peter's point. This world of violence, sin, and evil is not the world in which the Lord's people are to reside. This is not where we pitch our tents. To put it in McCarthy's terms, the country where sin predominates is not just no country for old men, it is no country for God's elect exiles. And Peter is concerned in the passage that we read that his readers may be tempted to pitch their tents and stake their claim in the wrong country, which is not the real country of their final destiny. So he encourages them to prepare their minds for action and to be sober-minded. Now, to be sober-minded means at least to see reality for what it is, in spite of how it might otherwise appear. It's to shake off all dreams and illusions, to dismiss any notions that would undermine our grasp on reality, and to look at the world not in a distorted way, but in a way that affirms its true character. A part of this grasp of reality, says Peter, is that we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, redemption is not a dream. It is as real as the here and now. The end of history is coming, and Christ himself is coming, and that, Peter says, should control how we think and live in the here and now. As a matter of, fact, matter of fact, Peter's point is that it is just because we live our lives there and then with a view toward the coming of Christ, it's because of that, see, that we are to think of it in the here and now, that we're to have a perspective on this life that overshadows, reinterprets, and controls the sin and the suffering and the evil that surrounds us. We are, in other words, as he says in chapter 2, verse 1, to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Remember what happens in Narnia when the white witch takes over? It's a great uh, place. Uh, it's not a great place, says Lewis. It is a place where it is always winter and never Christmas. That is, I think, a nice description for a child, for what true hopelessness is. All that remains is the cold, stark reality of the rule of the white witch. Narnia is no country for old men as long as the white witch is in control. But then what happens? Aslan comes. And what does Lewis tell us about Narnia when Aslan comes on the scene? He says, the thaw begins. The melting of the cold, stark, wicked reign of the white witch begins when Aslan appears, and that melting will one day be complete. 
What the Lord is intent to highlight here in our passage in this epistle is that what takes place universally with respect to God's creation, the thaw that begins at the first coming of Christ, takes place as well in our own hearts at the point when we are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So we're reminded here that in the midst of evil and suffering, if we're to view that as sober-minded people whose minds are prepared for action, that suffering produces the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, Peter says. And the intended goal of our suffering is that the tested genuine faith that we have because of our suffering may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Peter's overriding concern, to help us see how trials and testings of this present age have to be rightly and biblically understood in terms of the growing up, the maturity that is to take place between now and the eschaton. So again, in verse 8, Peter says in chapter 1, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And, notice, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What then is to be our attitude as suffering Christians? More specifically, what is to be your attitude as one who will, as a Christian leader, suffer and experience evil and sin? It is this, believe in Christ and rejoice. This is not to say that the trials are easy or that Christianity is a light affair or that difficulties are less than severe. But it is to say that we may not, as those who belong to Christ, simply see those trials and testings and difficulties in terms of what they are in themselves. We're not to think, dear friends, that life is hard and ministry is hard, and that tasks that the Lord gives us are hard without at the same time understanding that in Christ we are to be people of joy who are able, because of Christ, to rejoice. We only see our suffering properly. We are only sober-minded about these things. Our minds are only prepared for action if and when we see those difficulties as momentary and light afflictions preparing us for the glory that will be revealed in Christ. So Peter says, chapter 2, verse 1, "...put away all malice and all deceit." and hypocrisy, and evil, and slander. Now, why does he say that? It seems to me the richness of what he's saying there may be easy to miss. It may be easy to miss in part because this begins a new chapter in the book, and so we may feel the urge simply to begin with that. We may simply think that Peter's admonition is to stay away from bad things and focus on good things, and that, of course, is true enough. But his little word there, so, says so much. It points us back to what has already been said in this epistle. It gives us the rationale or the reason why we should not live in the country where evil and sin predominate. And he says this at least for three reasons. I'll give them quickly. First of all, our identity. Peter says this because we are elect exiles. 
This is how Peter begins his epistle right from the start. He's reminding his readers that while they themselves do not feel at home because they are exiles, the fact of the matter is no matter where you are in this world, you are not at home because your home is elsewhere. The country where sin reigns is not the permanent real country at all. That country is being subdued by the current reign of Christ. But there's more to it than that, at least from Peter's perspective. You may have noticed uh, this morning that it seems to be we're in the midst of an election year in this country. And one of the interesting aspects of a democratic election like ours, as you can hear or see in any of the media out there at this point, is that candidates for the presidential election, as much as lies within them, do their dead-level best to become like the ones to whom they are at the moment speaking. Those examples can be multiplied. You've probably already read or seen plenty of them. Why is it like that? It's because when the people elect their leader, it is incumbent on the leader to try to be like the people. But God's election works in reverse. It is not a democratic election. In the economy of redemption, when the leader elects the people, it is incumbent on the people to be more like the leader, which is quite the opposite of what we're used to in this country. So Peter says in chapter 2 verse 4, as you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, because Christ is a living stone chosen and precious, it is incumbent on you to be like living stones a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. That is your identity, Peter is saying. Secondly, we're to put away these things because of our inheritance. The reason Peter says we're not to act in ways that are foreign to our identity is that those things are not for us what is real in terms of what God has done in us and through us. That is, if we act in these sinful and distorted ways, we are not sober-minded. We are losing our grip on reality. Peter uh, explains this in the first chapter as he gives us explicit clues to what reality is for the Christian. Chapter 1, verse 3, We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, So that now we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verses 18 and 19, we've been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Finally, as we read verse 23 and following, not only so, but we've been born again through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You see, that which is real for us is that which abides forever for us. Peter here is highlighting the permanence of our Christian existence and inheritance over against those temporary and for a little while realities that surround us now. Which leads to the last point, the environment. 
Peter is concerned that we not accede to sinful patterns of behavior because in so doing we reject the very family, the very society, the very environment into which God has brought us. Here's the problem. Some of you uh, are probably familiar, as I learned in sociology class in college, with the concept of feral children. Now, whether or not it's true is still a question. There are stories told of young children who are raised by wild animals. And what happens to these children if raised in this condition? They take on the characteristics of their environment. Peter's concern here in admonishing his readers not to succumb to the sinful patterns of the world is that they will, of necessity, become spiritually feral children if you continue to place yourselves in the wrong environment in which sin can thrive, then you will be hopelessly at some point malnourished intellectually and spiritually and will never be able to attain to the full-grown expectation that is required of those who live in the family of God. Concluding, I think this is Peter's main point to us. If you wrap yourself up in the fight against suffering and evil in this world in such a way that you forget your identity in Christ as elect exiles, or you lose sight of your inheritance of that which is imperishable, or you deceive yourselves into thinking that the environment of suffering and sin is all there is, then like Ed, Tom, you will be overwhelmed by the sinfulness that surrounds you. But the good news is the thaw has begun. The same Christ who came and defeated evil and suffering by suffering, that Christ will return. And you now live, as the author to the Hebrews reminds us, in a better heavenly country. It is incumbent upon all of us then as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, to rejoice as we look forward to the final and climactic city, that holy nation which God in Christ has prepared for his own children who are even now citizens of that kingdom that cannot be shaken. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that this morning we can set our minds again on the things of heaven where Christ is and understand again that you have set a day when he will come back to receive us so that even now we can be encouraged to subdue the sin that remains within us, to be holy even as you are holy, that we might live and breathe as citizens of a holy nation. Bless us to that end this day, for Christ's sake. Amen.